Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we are on chapter 6 tonight. The fall of mankind, sin, and its punishment. And so I just want to go back and talk about the logical order of the confession. Um, so as we kind of go through each chapter, if you remember chapter 1 was focused on the Bible. And that's where everything starts. So every doctrine that we believe comes from our understanding of the scriptures. Okay. Then, chapter 2 was the attributes of God, who God is in all of his glory, all of his attributes. Then in chapter 3, there was God's decree. This is what God planned before he created the world, that sovereign decree. Chapter 4 was creation. God created the world. Last week, chapter 5 was God's providence and how he operates in his creation. And now we get to... What happened with those first two people that God created in the Garden of Eden, and why is the world the way it is? Okay? So, we're going to talk about the fall of Adam and Eve. So, if you guys have your confession, let's read. We're on page 21. This is chapter 6, paragraph 1. We'll just read this and then we'll dive into the scriptures, okay? So here's the first statement. God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit this act because he had purpose to direct it for his own glory. There's that word permission there at the very end. He, he permitted the fall for his own glory. So, we all know what happened with Adam and Eve, but let's go back to the beginning. So I want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Seems like we haven't been able to get out of Genesis the past few weeks, but Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And we'll look at this in a few weeks in more detail. This is historically called the covenant of works, or a covenant that God establishes with Adam because there is a a command and a prohibition, and um, let's just read. So let's read Genesis 2.16. The Lord God commanded, and by the way, just, this is the very first time the word commanded shows up in the Bible. It's the very first command. Okay, so let's just stop. How many commandments are there that Exodus talks about when Moses comes down the mountain? Two. Ten. How many commands are here? One. Okay, there's only one commandment here before we even get to the Ten Commandments. So, But everything's wrapped up in this. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for if in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Okay, are those directions clear? Is God being stingy by saying, Hey, I'm, I'm withholding a lot from you. What's God saying? You're free to eat of 
any tree. But there's one. And what's the problem if you eat of it? What will happen? If you eat of it, you will die. Now, they probably didn't quite understand death yet because it not had entered the world. And so we're going to talk about that. Okay, so what happens is we go into Genesis chapter 3. So let's go into Genesis chapter 3 and let's find out. I call this three satanic ploys, okay? So let's just read chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, key there, and he ate, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Okay. The serpent comes in, and there's three satanic ploys that the serpent does to seduce Eve, who then seduces her husband. Okay, so what's the first thing that the devil does? Number one, he questions God's authoritative word. What does he say? What's the first words out of his mouth? Did God really say this? Are you sure you heard God right? Did God really say you, you, you can't eat from any tree of the garden? Are you sure God said that? That's Satan's tactic from the very beginning. To do what? Make you question God's word. <clears throat> and notice how he's very eloquent. I don't know if you know this, but the devil is a seasoned theologian. He knows the Bible. He quoted scripture to Jesus in the, in, the, in the wilderness. He knows just enough scripture to twist what God says. So a lot of false teaching comes from twisting of God's word. And so from the very beginning, Satan says to the woman, to Eve, are you sure God said that? It's plants that little doubt that I, Eve's probably thinking, I, well, I don't know. Did, did, did God say that? Well, maybe God didn't say that. Okay? What's the second satanic ploy that the serpent uses? He seduced them to be like God. Notice what he says. He says, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Wasn't that Satan's desire from the very beginning himself? To be like God? That's why Satan was the fallen angel. Just because he wanted to elevate himself above God. So think about the two things Satan's telling Eve. You can't trust God's word and you can be like God. Doubt and pride. Okay? And then the third satanic ploy is this. He tells them a bald-faced lie that sin has no dire consequences. What does he tell them in verse 4? The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What did God say back in verse 17 of chapter 2? In the day you eat of it, what? You will 
surely die. What does Satan do? He lies to her and says, you're not going to die. That's, God's being a little bit overboard. It's one tree. What's the big deal? You're not going to die. There's no consequences. Go for it. Doubt God's word. Be like God. And there's no consequences to your sin. Now, we know what the consequences are. So that is the seduction, the satanic ploy, that the serpent slithered into the garden and he seduced Eve. Now, before we get Adam or Eve, before we like not address Adam, where's Adam this entire time? He's right next to her. And what's the problem with Adam? He's not protecting Eve from the serpent. The very first time that serpent got close to Eve, what should Adam have done? Killed the serpent and drove him out of the garden. But Adam leaves her vulnerable to the attacks of the serpent, and she's seduced. Okay, let's look at the transgression. So in verses 6 through 8, we see the transgression. What does she do? When the woman, this is verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Should, why did he eat it? He didn't say no either. Now, everybody calls it an apple. We don't know what it was. It was a fruit. It doesn't matter if it was an apple or if it was a pear. The, the forbidden fruit. The point was they could not eat from that tree. And so she fell for the bait. And she was deceived. And Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul says the serpent had cunning. What's cunning? He's beguiling. He's, he's manipulative. He's slick. And then later on in that passage, Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Okay, so there's the seduction, there's the transgression. But what are the immediate consequences of this treason? Are there immediate consequences? Yes. What, you guys tell me, what do we see? Look at verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. They sewed fig leaves to cover what? Their shame. So what this is, is the very first thing they do, this is a man-made attempt to deal with sin. They sew fig leaves together. They try to fix the problem. They try to cover their nakedness. They try to hide their sin. They attempt to deal with sin with the only way they know how. Do they call out to God and ask for forgiveness? No, they, they try to cover themselves with stuff that they can make, stuff they can find. It's a man-made attempt to cover shame. And so there is shame that ultimately results from the sin. So they're hiding from God. They're alienated from one another. And that closeness that they had as a married couple is now 
fractured. And so what they experience is immediate guilt, immediate shame, immediate fracturing, that the consequences are immediate. Now, God comes in and puts Adam and Eve on trial. And not because God doesn't know what they did. Obviously, God knows what they did. But oftentimes in the Bible, you'll see these courtroom scenes where God comes in like the prosecuting attorney and he bring, bring forth the evidence and ask questions. Not because God's trying to find out information, but it's basically for the person that sinned to expose their sin. So let's look at the trial. I call this the trial. God brings them out on trial. So let's keep reading. Verses 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? Not because God didn't know where he was. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of, the, of the, that which I commanded you not to eat? Again, not because God didn't know. And I love the answer that the man gives. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what's this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, what else is the result from this sin? Verse 10, we see it in full force, fear. What was Adam's relationship with God before? Love, security, confidence. But now he's afraid. It's the first time he's afraid of God because he's guilty, he's shameful, he's fearful. And no one had to tell Adam he sinned. He knew it in his heart of hearts he had sinned once it happened. But one of the biggest things that we see here is the blame game, the shifting of accountability. Okay, so what does Adam say? Adam blames two people. He blames God, he blames a woman. God, it's your fault because you gave me this woman and it's her fault she made me eat. What does the woman do? The devil made me do it. Okay, so neither one of them are taking personal responsibility. What does sin do? When you're caught, what's your first reaction to blame? It's not my fault. Somebody else made me do it. It's your fault, Blame, blaming, shifting the, the responsibility. No personal accountability. We don't own up to it. Does Adam, you know, say the words of Psalm 32, 5? I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. No. So they transgressed the covenant. And that's what Hosea says. Hosea 6, 7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. He's talking about Israel here. God had made a covenant. We'll talk about this next week when we talk about covenant theology. God established a covenant with Adam and said, Adam, I'm entering into a relationship with you and there's one stipulation. If you eat from the tree, you will die. The flip side of that is if you don't eat from the tree, you will live. Just one command, Adam. And he broke it. He transgressed it. Okay, so they broke the covenant, they transgressed, they sinned, Satan seduced Eve, Eve seduced her husband, both of them are accountable before God for their sin. But then the last, look at the last sentence of the confession. 
So this kind of, I just kind of summarized what the confession says here from the scriptures. But again, this is all under God's sovereign decree because that last sentence says, God was pleased in keeping with this wise and holy counsel to permit this act because he had purpose to direct it for his own glory. So you may ask the question, well, why did God, did God know Adam and Eve were going to sin? Yes. Why did God allow it to happen? We really don't know, but the answer we can give is it's for his own glory, its own purpose. So it didn't catch God by surprise what Adam and Eve did. Did God force Adam and Eve to sin? No. They sinned by their own free volition to sin. Did God stop Adam from sinning? No. God permitted it and allowed it. And so God allowed the fall because it was part of his sovereign plan to bring about a greater good for his glory. Okay? So that's paragraph one that we see in Genesis chapters two and three. Any questions on that before we move forward in the teaching? Makes Everybody clear about the fall? Okay. Now, the big question you should be asking next is, okay, what... What Adam and Eve did, how does it impact us and all humanity in the earth today? Was it just a singular act that they did that only impacted them, or does it have dire effects upon us today? So that's the rest of what the confession is going to talk about, the effects of the fall. So let's look at paragraph two. By this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. That's why it's called the fall. We fell in them. And through this, death came upon all. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. Okay, as we move forward, what the rest of chapter uh, 6 is going to teach are four truths related to the effects of the fall. And so this passage teaches two. Well, there may be I'll, I'll, there may be four. I have, to, I, have to, I have to remember. But this passage teaches inherited guilt and total depravity. Inherited guilt and total depravity. Now what do I mean by inherited guilt? It says, we fell in them. They fell, they sinned, but we too sinned when they sinned. How can that happen? Okay, so let's talk about inherited guilt. And for pretty much the rest of tonight, we're pretty much mostly going to be in the book of Romans. Because the book of Romans gives a commentary, probably the biggest commentary, on what happened in Genesis. So let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Because when you look at the, the narrative of the fall in Genesis 3, you see the effects of the fall but you don't see a lot of explanation as far as the theology behind what it really happened. So what Paul does in the New Testament is we have the full teaching of Scripture. Paul is going to explain back what happened in Genesis 3 in deeper terms in Romans chapter 5 as far as what really happened. So he kind of unpacks the, the fall for us and shows us what happened. So let's just... Look at Romans 5, 12. Let's just read verse 12, and then we'll, we'll go through the rest of it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Okay, who's the one man? Adam. 
and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, there's three truths in that one verse. Truth number one, this is an easy one to think about. Sin came into the world through Adam. But the penalty of death with it. So how did sin come into the world? Adam brought it into the world. Okay. Number two, death spread to all people, meaning the reason that you die and I die is because Adam sinned and brought death. Because what did Genesis 2.17 say? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay. These first two truths we understand. Adam brought sin and death into the world. All of us are impacted by sin and death. But it's that third truth that has confounded theologians, and there's different camps what does that last phrase say in verse 12? All sinned. Now, wait a minute. I thought Adam and Eve were the ones that sinned. It says all sinned. How can you and I have sinned in the garden when we weren't there? We inherited okay. sin <clears throat> from How? Adam. So, yeah. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22 says this. For as by a man came death, that's, that's Adam, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead, talking about Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay. We'll talk about this a little bit next week, but Adam is what we call our federal head. Or a better word would be our representative. And what he did in the garden means that he represented us and his actions are credited to us so that we're implicated in those actions. Let me give you the best illustration I can think of. When you vote for a senator from Colorado, that senator goes to Washington to do what? Vote on behalf of the interests of us in Colorado. Do all of Colorado citizens go to Washington, D.C. to vote? No, we don't. We don't all go. We have a representative. And how that representative votes, whether we like it or not, his actions impact us directly, even though we didn't do the actions. So what Paul's saying is that what Adam did in the garden, he represented all of mankind, and what he did, we by extension would have done if we were there also. So in a sense, his sin becomes our sin because think about it this way. If you were Adam, given enough time, would you have done the same thing? Yes. Probably. Okay? Now, before you say, wow, I would never do that. Think about the state Adam was created in. He was created in an upright state. He had never sinned. Now, we're going to talk about the possibility here. So, um, Adam could sin or not sin. Correct? And we know that he could have sinned because he sinned. Us today, can we choose to not sin or can we only sin? Well, we can... We can, we can choose not to sin, but we're going to sin, right? When we get to heaven is the only time we're ever going to be able to not sin. But even Adam, created in the garden, had the capacity to sin. 
So it may not seem fair that what Adam did is accounted to us, but that's just what Paul teaches here. It's credited to us. His actions become our actions. His guilt becomes our guilt. His sin becomes our sin. And so Paul's going to go on and explain this. So let's look at verse 15. So I've just kind of given you the summary teaching of, of, of verses 15 through 19. So let's look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Okay, so what does verse 15 teach? All humans died through Adam's trespass. Now, why is it called a What's a trespass? Okay, but what's a trespass? Like, if you get caught for trespassing... My brother got my brother got a got a ticket one time going up in Colorado Springs as he trespassed. He went to Garden of the Gods after hours with his girlfriend. He got charged with trespassing. The cop didn't give him press charges, but what happens when you trespass? You cross a boundary you're not supposed to cross. What was the boundary they weren't supposed to cross? Do not eat of the fruit. Now that word trespass in the Greek means to fall. That's why we call it the fall. You know, men are like, why do we call it the fall? The fall of Adam and Did they fall off a tree? Did they fall off a ladder? Why do they call it? A fall means they took a false step. They trespassed. They fell from their original state of innocence because they trespassed. They, they walked past where they weren't, weren't supposed to walk. They crossed the boundary. They disobeyed God. Okay? All right, verse 16. What does verse 16 say? And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Okay, what does verse 17, verse 16 say? One, Adam's one sin brought judgment of condemnation for all humans. Now this is important because Paul does not say that we're condemned because of our sin, even though we are. What are we condemned for? Adam's sin. Now you may again say, that's not fair. I wasn't there, but that's just how God has set it up. You get the punishment for Adam's sin carried out upon you. Okay, verse 17. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus. So what does verse 17 tell us? Adam's one sin caused death to reign death. And then verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So his one trespass led to what? Condemnation. And then verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay, so verse 19, Adam's one sin of disobedience resulted in all humans being counted as sinners by Adam's guilt. So what we're saying here is that what Adam did in the garden as our representative is credited to us as if we were there. And so we inherit the sin nature. We inherit the guilt. We inherit the condemnation. We inherit everything that Adam did because in a sense, as our representative, if all of us would have been there, we would have done the same thing. 
Does that, does that make sense to you guys? So we, ha- we are born in Adam. Is the way that Paul talks about in Romans 5. Every single person is born, what we say, in Adam. And that just means you're lost. Now, the only way to get out of being in Adam is to be in Christ. There's only two choices. You're in Adam, you're in Christ. You're lost, you're saved. So how do you get out of being in Adam and being in Christ? By faith. By faith alone. You believe in Jesus, you're saved from your sins, and you're no longer in Adam, you're in Christ. Okay? So this is called inherited guilt or original sin or whatever you want to call it. Adam's sin is passed down to us, and we inherit it. We get it. Now, that last sentence, all became dead in sin, and complete, there's the word completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. Okay, this is a brief definition of what we call total depravity. So total depravity, first of all, let's talk about the, what does the word depravity mean? Corrupted, twisted, sinful. What does total mean? What would partial depravity mean? We're kind of halfway. Yeah, just a little bit. We're halfway. Total means every part of us. Okay, so every, sing, every part of the human person is corrupted by sin. So that means you're born with the mind. Your mind has been corrupted by sin, which means that you're going to think evil thoughts right from the very beginning. Your mind has been infected by sin. Not only that, your heart, your emotions, your affections. The, the Bible says the heart is, de- is deceptive, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You're going to have wicked emotions and wicked affections. And then your will, your desire to do and your ability to do things are also going to be enslaved and you cannot freely do anything positive for Christ. So your mind, heart, will, emotions, the totality of you as a person is totally corrupted by sin from the moment that you're born. Now, let me give a clarifying statement on total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that we're utterly depraved. What's the difference between total and utter? Total just means every part of us is infected. Utter means we're as sinful as we could be. Now, are there degrees of sinful people in this world? Yes. Is everybody walking around like a Hitler? Is everybody as evil as Hitler? No. So there are some people that are really, really depraved. And there are some nice moral people, but they're still, in their heart of hearts, totally depraved. It just means this. Every part of you from birth is corrupted. Mind, heart, will, emotions, every part of you is radically corrupt. Now, the reason why I call it radically, so it's radical, dude. Okay. You guys know what the word radical means? So you might know what the word radical means. Okay. It, it's, it comes from the Latin word radix, R-A-D, it's either U-X or I-X. Radix or radical means to the root. So you could say it's radical depravity, meaning it goes down to the root of who you are. Everything about you to the very depth of who you are has been infected with sin because of what Adam and Eve did. Okay? All right. Chapter or paragraph three goes on to explain in a little bit more detail about what Adam and Eve did that we looked at in Romans five. So let's keep moving here. And by the way, tonight's this is not the most positive teaching when you're talking about human sin. Um, so 
I hope to bring good news at the end, but this is kind of, this can kind of get like, oh man, this is like kind of depressing. But it's in the Bible and we need to learn it. Okay, so stick with me. All right, paragraph three. By God's appointment, they, that's Adam and Eve, were the root and the representatives of the whole human race. That's why I said they were the representatives. Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted, the guilt was accounted, and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. Okay, that would be Cain and Abel and all their children. Their descendants, which would be us, every human being, are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, partakers of death, and all their miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. That's, that's the key there. Unless Jesus sets you free, you're a slave to sin. So, all people everywhere, because everybody came from Adam and Eve, are depraved. So here's the next truth that the Bible teaches is what we call universal depravity. Okay? Now, what I mean, total depravity means every part of you is depraved. Universal depravity means everybody is infected with this. There's not one person besides Jesus that, that's been born that's never, that doesn't have this total depravity. So let's backtrack into Romans chapter 3, and let's look at verses 9 through 12, and let's see what Paul teaches about this universal depravity that all people, and I want you to notice the, the wording he uses here, okay? So Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you can go on and on and on. Okay. So what does this passage teach? Number one, sin enslaves everyone in a powerful condition. What does he say there in verse 9? All. So Romans chapter 1, Paul says, hey, Gentiles, you're depraved. You're sinful. And the Jews are like, oh, yeah, Paul, go after the Gentiles. Chapter 2, Romans, Paul says, oh, Jews, you're actually worse off because you know better and you're just as sinful. So when he comes to chapter 3, he's like, okay, both of you, Jews and Gentiles, all people, everybody is under sin. What does it mean to be under sin? That's, that's a key term, you're under sin. If you're under something, what does that mean? You're ruled by it. You're, ruled by it. you're, under, you're under its penalty. You're under its power. You're under its pollution. You are it, it is over you as a power. So every single person without Jesus is enslaved or under the power of sin, and you cannot escape it. Okay? Now, I want to talk about a heresy that came about in the 400s, late 400s, early, well, early 400s. And we've talked about this over the years. This is called Pelagianism. This is a weird word, and why is it called Pelagianism? It's called Pelagianism because of a British monk named Pelagius. That was his name. He lived from 350 to 425 A.D. 
He taught briefly in Rome toward the end of the 4th century. He fled to North Africa in 410, and he engaged in disputes with Augustine. And Pelagius, his main teaching is this. This is what his main teaching was, among other things. Men are born morally neutral with an equal capacity for either good or evil. Men are born with a men and women are born with a blank slate. Basically, what he would say is what Adam and Eve did in the garden has no impact on us today. Now you may eventually sin because Adam and Eve sinned, and you're just imitating what they did, but you don't inherit anything from Adam. Nothing that Adam did in the garden impacts you. So you're basically born neutral. You're born a blank slate. So you can choose to sin, you can choose not to sin, depending on your environment. What have we just seen so far? That Why is that a heresy? Are we born blank slates that can choose to... I mean, so this was condemned as a heresy by three church councils. The Council of Carthage, the Council of Ephesus, and the Council of Orange all denounced this as heresy. And even the Roman Catholic Church today denounces this as a heresy. So no, even Roman Catholics, Protestants, all groups that claim the word Christian, they deny Pelagianism. It is an her outright heresy. So the question, here's the question that we've got to battle with, because this is where Protestants and where maybe our church is different than other churches. We all know that Adam's sin impacted us. The question is to what extent? How sinful are we? What's the extent of what Adam did? Okay? <laughs> so... Being under sin is universal condition, meaning every single person without exception is born this way. When did that sin come to you? What does David say in Psalm 51, 5? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. When did you receive that original sin? At conception, when you became a living being. Okay, let's ask a question. This is a deep theological question, okay? Jeremiah 13, 23. Here's the deep theological question. Can Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can, can Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can an African with black skin wake up and say, I really want ivory white skin? No. Why? Because you are born that way. Here's another deep theological question. Can a leopard change his spots? Can a leopard wake up one day and say, I want stripes instead of spots? No, why can't a leopard change his spots? Because he's born that way. Okay, now here's the real theological question. Then can you do good who are accustomed to evil? What's the answer? No. Why? Because like the leopard and like the Ethiopian, you were born that way. You were born in a condition where you cannot choose to not sin because it's in your nature from birth to sin. You're born a sinner. So let's go through this list here and see what Paul says. No one is righteous. And this comes from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart there is no God. 
They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looked down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. There's no one who is righteous. Meaning there's no one that stands before God positively willing to be accepted because they do enough good to earn God's salvation. Okay? We understand that one, right? No one's righteous. All right, what about the second thing he says there? No one understands. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, and when Paul talks about the natural person, he's talking about the unsaved person, the unregenerate, the lost person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, let me unpack this for a moment. No one understands. What does that mean? Does that mean when I present the gospel to someone who's not saved, they don't understand the facts that I'm telling them? No, that's not what it means. I can talk to an unsaved person and talk about their sin. I can talk about Jesus. I can talk about his death, burial, and resurrection. I can give them information, right, all day long. And they can track with what I'm saying. They can understand the information. But what can they not really understand? They really can't repent and believe and come to that knowledge unless the Holy Spirit does that work to them. They can understand facts about the gospel, but they really don't understand their need to believe in Jesus until the Holy Spirit brings that conviction. Because Paul says it's spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit's got to give that work. In your, the Holy Spirit's got to open your eyes. Has that ever happened to you where you shared the gospel with someone and they sat there and they, they nodded their head and, they, and then you walked away and nothing ever happened? And you know they understood what you said. But did they ever, like, were they ever under conviction? Did they ever trust Christ for salvation? Did they ever show any repentance? Or was it like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I've had that happen a lot where you, you lay out the gospel, you lay out the information, and, and people are like, well, thanks for, sharing with, thanks for sharing with me. I appreciate it. And then you go on your merry way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, I understand it. Are you bothered by it? Are you convicted? No, that's good for you. But... I mean, I got my own life to live, and so thanks for sharing that. They understood, right? They understood enough to reject, but did they really understand the truth until God did that work in their heart? Okay. And then what about this next one? No one seeks God. I thought, I thought people were seeking things. Have you ever heard of a seeker-sensitive service, a seeker-targeted service, where a person's a seeker, a person's seeking God? No one seeks God. All right, let's ask the question. What does it mean to seek God? To truly seek God? Here's what the Bible says to seek God means. It means that you desire his glory above all, and Jesus is your greatest treasure and satisfaction. Is that what most people are seeking? Maybe they're seeking answers. Maybe they're seeking a religious experience. Maybe they're seeking some type of miracle. But are they seeking God for who God is? Let me just kind of give a side note here. This is not, we have enough time to talk about this. There was a whole movement in the 80s and 90s, and it's kind of still around today, called the seeker-targeted movement. And it was basically, you go and create a church 
based upon the needs of unsaved people in the community. And so your entire church is geared towards the unbeliever. So you're not going to have anything that offends them. You're not going to talk about repentance. You're not going to talk about the cross. You're not going to, you're going to be very casual. You're going to preach topical sermons. You're not going to do anything to step on people's toes. Your, your worship services aren't going to be really long. You're going to have shorter sermons because we want to reach the seeker. Now, noble desire, right? Do we want to reach people for Christ? But do you structure your entire church ministry and worship service for unbelievers? What's the purpose of a worship service? for believers to worship God. And so these churches grew big. Um, you ever heard of Saddleback Church and Rick Warren? Rick Warren went through Southern California and did, um, back in the 80s, and did research, went door to door to find out what type of church do young yuppies in Orange County want. And he got all the info back as far as what kind of church they wanted, and he created a church to meet. They were called Saddleback Sam. It was a profile Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church in Chicago did the same thing. You can think about today like Joel Osteen, some of these mega churches where they water things down to gear towards the seeker. Now, I personally think that model is going to go away pretty fast because of so much persecution. Either it's not going to be a Christian church and talk anything about Jesus because they want to stay big, or something's going to happen to where if they do decide to talk about Jesus, there's going to be so much pressure that the church is going to shrink because people are just not going to, going to want to come here. They're not going to have the thousands and thousands showing up. That's just my opinion. I, I may be wrong on that. But one of the things we see in Colossians here is Colossians 1, 21 through 22. You who were once, once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So you were once alienated and hostile to God. What does alienated mean? You're separated. Hostile means you're at war. So he says, no one understands, no, not one, no one under seeks God. All have turned aside. They've turned aside. This comes from Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. It's a prophecy about Jesus, but look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We've turned our own way. If you were to define sin, like an easy way to define sin to somebody is this. You're choosing to go your way instead of God's way. Like God's way is over here. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did, they did, didn't they? God said, hey, I'm giving you freedom to enjoy every tree of the garden. There's just one tree. Don't eat of it. You'll die. This is my word. This is my command. What did Adam and Eve do? They turned aside from God's command and they went their way and said, I want to take it. Sin is basically saying, I want to do my thing my way as opposed to God's way. You turned aside. And then notice what else he says. And they've become worthless. It's a graphic word in the original language describing how milk goes sour. You ever had sour milk? And then the next one is interesting. No one does good. What do you mean no one does good? I thought we had like the Red Cross. I thought we had a lot of... You see non-Christians doing good, right? You see a lot of good humanitarian 
um, disaster relief and help on the old lady across the road. There's a lot of good, right? What does it mean nobody does good? Well, here's the way the Bible defines it. There's a difference between what we would call a civic or societal good and a gospel good. What I mean by this, what Paul is getting at is this. Can you do, quote unquote, a good work, but with insincere motives and not for the glory of God? You can do a good work, but not for the glory of God and do it for selfish motives. What Paul's saying is ultimately no one does good in the sense that you're doing it without impure motives and you're doing it for the glory of God. No, no spiritual good that's pleasing to him. Isaiah 64, 6, we've all become like one who's unclean and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And notice it's universal. No one. No, not one. No, not one. No, not one. Okay? So let's, let's recap a little bit. The fall happened. They trespassed God's direct command. The fall brought shame, guilt, hiding, alienation. Paul goes in Romans 5 and says, here's all the things that happened from the fall because Adam was your representative all the sin that he did becomes your sin, becomes your guilt. You're born with it. And by the way, here in Romans 3, he says, it's universal to all people. There's nobody that, that is going to be good enough to be righteous before God. So that's chapter 6, paragraphs 1 through 3. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you sin because you're a sinner? Or are you a sinner because you sin? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> Let me ask it a different way. Do you sin because you have a sin nature? What comes first, your sin nature? Does your nature cause you to do actions, or do the actions come first? The nature. Because you're born with a nature, the nature causes you to do actual sins. So which comes first? You sin because you're a sinner. Okay. And so this is what paragraph um, 4 says. So paragraph four says, all actual transgressions arise from this first corruption. But if we're thoroughly biased against and is disabled antagonistic toward all that is good, and we are completely inclined toward all that is evil. So because you are spiritually dead, because you are totally depraved as your nature you will actually commit sins that flow from that nature. Okay? So, normally, usually, sin starts in the heart and mind before it's done in an action. Most of the time, right? Now, there's times where you maybe act on impulse and you didn't even think about it and you, you, did, you committed something. But sin can be any word, any thought, or any deed. And we often focus on sin as a deed, especially with your kids. It's like, don't do this, don't do this, and we focus on actions. And those are sins, but why did they do those actions? Because there's something wrong in their heart, and there's something wrong in their mind. Well, why is there something wrong in their heart and their mind? It goes back to their nature that they were born with. So, this paragraph teaches what we would call spiritual deadness, because it says we are completely inclined towards all that is evil. So let's, we're going to go to Ephesians and then jump back into Romans, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. And again, guys, this is really positive stuff tonight. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and Paul is going to give us 
a five-fold definition of what it means to be dead in sin. Is everybody there at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? And I want you to notice this is what you were, not what we are now. Okay, so this is, let me just say this. If you're a Christian tonight, these things that Paul is describing is what you used to be before God saved you. Now, the last paragraph is going to address that, but he's talking about the non-Christian. And so when Paul here is very important, this is what you were, not what you are, what you were. So let's, let's read this, Ephesians 2. And you were, no longer, but you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul gives five descriptions here of the unregenerate, unsafe person. And so the, the first thing he says is that we were at one time dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Again, what are trespasses? There's that word again. It means rebellion, crossing the boundaries. It's not a state of neutrality. Now, when you think about deadness, what do you normally think about deadness? Inactivity, right? You're just dead. Okay. Do you guys remember the movie The Sixth Sense? I see dead people. Okay. Well, they, they were walking around, right? And they were active. So spiritual deadness does not mean inactivity or neutrality, that you're just kind of like a spiritual corpse doing nothing. It's actually very actively doing something, because notice what Paul says, in which you once walked. If you trace the book of Ephesians, one of the key words in the book of Ephesians is walk. I think the NIV calls it live. It means your lifestyle. The totality of your lifestyle. So what Paul's saying is that even as one who's spiritually dead, your entire lifestyle, your walk, you know, we talk about the Christian walk. The spiritually dead walk means you're living a life animated, fully doing stuff, but it's spiritual deadness. It's in rebellion to God. It's not passivity or neutrality. It's actually you're walking in direct rebellion and you're spiritually dead doing it. So you're like a dead person walking. You're like a zombie. What's a zombie? Dead man walking. Dead man walking, okay? <laughs> zombies are pretty, they're, they're active. Flesh-eating zombies, they're not just passively. You're walking around, living life, but you're spiritually dead, okay? Now, so that's the condition. You're walking as spiritually dead. That's the first thing Paul describes. The second thing he says is, we once followed the course of this world. The world. This, and that means this world system, the world that's under the sway of the devil, those who are unsaved cannot help but be conformed to the image of this world system, which holds powerful sway over them. They're in love with this evil age. They're in love with this world. They're following, they're following the course of the world. It's like a racetrack. And you're like, you're following everything. Everything the world gives you, you're just following wherever the world's taking you. You're enamored by the world. 
Okay, so you're spiritually dead, number one. Number two, you follow the world. But number three, what does he say? You once followed Satan as children of disobedience. What is Satan called here? The prince of the power of the air. Satan has blinded unbelievers from seeing the gospel of Christ. And as children of the devil, unregenerate sinners by nature cannot help but walk in perpetual disobedience to their father. You're following the world and you're following Satan. So we've talked a lot in Emmanuel about the unholy trinity. What's the holy trinity? The father, the son, the spirit. What's the unholy trinity? The world, the flesh, and the devil. So you see that in this passage. First of all, you've got the world. Secondly, you've got the devil. And then fourth, fourth, the passions of the flesh. What does it say there? Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. At our deepest level, we are always wanting to feed our flesh, give in to sensuality, give in to our lusts. We're slaves to our sin. Titus 3.3 says it this way, for we ourselves were once, there's that once language, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others. The unregenerate, lost, unsaved person is a slave to their lusts. They're a slave to Satan. They're a slave to the world because they are spiritually dead. Now, Paul puts the icing on the cake with the fifth thing here and says, we were by nature children of wrath. Now, why does he say we're by nature? He could have said, you do all these things and you're accountable for these sins that you do. And he wouldn't be wrong if he said that. But he goes right to the very what? The reason you do these things is because it is your nature. Paul emphasizes that we're children by wrath, by nature. This is the fallen nature we're born with. And the only other place he uses this rare Greek word is in Galatians 2.15, where he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, nature, and not Gentile sinners. So by birth, by virtue of being born, we automatically deserve God's wrath because it's our nature. And notice the universality. What does he say there? Like the rest of mankind. Again, nobody's exempt from this. What does Jesus say in John 8, 34? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. A slave to sin. Spiritually dead. Follow the world. Follow the devil. Follow your flesh. And you're born by nature, child of God's wrath, deserving of judgment. No one seeks God. No one's righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned in Adam. Okay. This paragraph also teaches total inability. Now this is where those of us in the Reformed tradition differ from maybe those in others because at this point, 
Almost all evangelical Christians will agree that humans are born sinful and they've inherited a nature corrupt from Adam. But the question is to what degree? In other words, let me ask it this way. Did Adam's sin in the garden render us spiritually dead where we cannot do anything pleasing to God? And that means even repenting and believing. We've lost, quote unquote, the will or the ability to believe in Christ. Or does that mean that, yes, we're sinful, but we still retain a little bit of an ability, a little bit of libertarian free will to choose positively for Christ if God gives us enough information to believe? I think the Bible teaches the first. That we are unable to do anything positively good. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 8, 5 through 8. Um, you know what? Before we go there, are you guys okay if I go off script? Because I think we have time. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go to Romans 8 and then we'll go to John chapter 6. Because you're already in Romans and I already have, I heard the, blank, I already have the, the screen up here. Let's just go to Romans 8 because I told you we'd be mostly in Romans. Okay. Romans 8, 5 through 8. Is everybody there? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see those words cannot? If you cannot do something, what does that mean? Not able. You're not able to do it. Okay? So Paul is contrasting the unregenerate versus the regenerate person. A person who is saved has the Holy Spirit. They don't live according to the flesh. They live according to the Spirit. An unsaved person, an unregenerate person, a lost person... They live according to the flesh. Because what did Paul say back in Ephesians? You follow the flesh because you're spiritually dead. And, he, and Paul reiterates this. So, so what are the four descriptions of the unregenerate person here in Romans 8? Well, first Paul says their mind is death. They're spiritually dead. And I find it interesting that he doesn't say there that their mind leads to death. He says their mind is death. It's in the present tense. Meaning like right now they're spiritually dead. An unregenerate person is spiritually dead. And again, we, didn't, we, we don't mean they're neutral in activity. As a matter of fact, what does that spiritual death look like? Well, Paul says, secondly, that expresses itself in that they are hostile to God. You guys see that in verse 7? The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. What does it mean to be hostile? What's hostility? What? Anger. Anger. Hatred. Because of this condition of being spiritually dead, the unregenerate sinner hates God. Now, let me ask you a question. Do most non-Christians wake up each morning and say, I hate God? No. Maybe some like rabid atheist would do that. Most people don't consciously wake up and say, I hate God. But in their heart of hearts, do they wake up glorifying God? 
Do they want to please God today? No. That's a strong word, hostile. You, in your unsaved condition, are at war with God. It's hostile. James 4, 4 says what? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity. What's enmity? It's another word for hostile. Those who ever wish to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Most unsaved people don't think themselves as enemies of God. But they are because they're in a state of rebellion. So they're spiritually dead. And that expresses itself in hostility, hatred. But notice what Paul says thirdly here. The sinful person cannot submit to God's law. It does not submit, and it cannot submit. It's inability. Now, what does it mean to submit to God's law? Does that merely mean the Ten Commandments, that, that an unsaved person can't obey the Ten Commandments? I mean, yes, but does it go beyond that? God's law is any command in the Bible he places upon any of us. And we can't fulfill it. So let me ask you a question. Is repenting and believing part of God's law in the sense are those duties placed upon all people everywhere? Are we commanded to repent and believe? Are we commanded to repent and believe? Yes. Is that please God for us to repent and believe? Okay. Can we do that? Not on our own, okay. So we cannot submit ourselves to repenting and believing or doing anything spiritually positive due to being in the flesh as a lifestyle and also this hostility to mind. Okay, so Paul has, this is the first cannot statement. Person cannot submit to God's law. Now why do you think Paul says it another, Paul says it another way, just in case you didn't get it the first time. Here, here's Paul says it another way. Here's the fourth thing we see. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, this is a different word, please God. It's another cannot. You cannot please, you cannot submit. That word please means to win, win God's favor, to be worthy. You cannot please God. So in your sinful state, you are spiritually dead. You are hostile. You cannot obey. You cannot please. And Let's go to John 6 and see what Jesus tells us that we cannot do also, okay? So let me just show you what the word cannot is. It's the Greek word dunamai. Cannot. And really, it's, there's a negative part, cannot, but it's the word ability, or really it's the word power. We get our word dynamite from it. So when you see cannot... In the Greek, it means you have no, it really it means no ability or inability, no power. So let's turn to John 6, 44. Okay, this is not in your notes, but we've got time, I think. And let's go to Jesus, because we've been in Paul a lot. So John 6, 44, let me write, just write this on the board since it's not in, in the PowerPoint or... So those of you listening to the podcast after the fact, those of you watching on Facebook Live, you don't have the notes either, but it's not going to be up on the screen. So John 6, 44. 
Let's read this. No one can what? Come to me, that's Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the same exact Greek expression that we see in Romans chapter 8. You can translate literally, no one has the ability or the power to what? Come. What does it mean to come to Jesus? Have faith. To faith, to believe. So you can't do that, right? Unless what happens? The Holy Spirit draws you. What? God's grace. The Holy Spirit. Now the question is not, the question is not, do you need God's grace to come? That's not the question. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. The question is not, do you need God's grace to come? The question is, what's the nature of that grace? Is it a grace that overcomes your deadness and brings you all the way? Is it a grace that can be resisted? Is it a grace that merely woos and persuades but has no power to actually overcome your deadness? Or is it an irresistible grace that God actually does overcome your deadness and causes you to come freely? I'll leave you to think about that until we get to it. But I think you know where we come from on which one it is. Okay. Now, this is, up to this point, this chapter has dealt with the fall and the effects of the fall and really talking about unsaved people. Now we get to the last paragraph, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because when we get to the doctrine of sanctification, we're going to come back to it. But it's, just, it's addressed here briefly. So uh, paragraph five. During this life, this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated. Even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, yet both this corruption of nature and all actions arising from it are truly and actually sin. What basically Paul, or what basically the confession is saying is that when you become a Christian, you still have a sin nature. God doesn't take it away. Now, you're regenerated, you're cleansed, you're saved, but you will still struggle with sin. Now, you can ask the question, how come when you became a Christian, God didn't just make you perfect and sin-free? Why do we have to wait to heaven to, to have that? We don't know the exact answer to that, but we do know what Galatians 5, 16-17 says. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. So here's the point. You have the Holy Spirit living in you now, but you still have the remaining flesh, and those two things are going to battle it out. And so you need to walk in the Spirit, submit to the Spirit, because you're always going to have a continual battle. So I'll just say it this way. If you struggle with sin, it's probably evidence you're truly a Christian. Because non-Christians don't struggle with sin. Like, what? Non-Christians sin, and they may be bothered by sin, but they can't struggle with sin in the sense that the Holy Spirit's in them and they're desiring to do the right thing because they have the Holy Spirit. Non-Christians can't say that. Only Christians can say that because we have the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's basically, what, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because when we get to the doctrine of sanctification, how you grow in Christ, we'll come back to that. So let's summarize. All right. So before God saved us by grace, we inherited original guilt from Adam. We were corrupt to the core of our beings. We were spiritually dead. And we were unable to do anything positive in coming to Christ. Now, that's a summary of everything we've looked at. So, let's just make this very practical tonight. Two, two practical thoughts. First, so what should our response be to this? 
Here's the first. This devastating reality should drive us to our knees and thankful humility and joy that God saved us by grace alone. You could have remained in your state of sin, but God has saved you. That's what you were. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer spiritually dead. You're no longer in the flesh. You're no longer a slave to Satan. You're no longer following the course of this world. You are a new creation in Christ, and God has saved you from that, and now you're in Christ. You're no longer in Adam. And so that should lead to great joy, great assurance, great humility that God saved you from what you were. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you were saved as an adult and lived a life of sin and you can look back and be like, wow, I knew what my life really was like before God saved me. Now, some of us were saved, you know, like I was saved when I was nine. I wasn't a drug dealer. I didn't visit whorehouses. I didn't do any of that stuff as a nine-year-old, so I didn't have a really bad reputation. But I had sin in my life just as much as, a, as the worst person. So it doesn't matter your history. All of us, to the core of our being, were sinners that deserved wrath, hell, we were hopeless, helpless, and hell-bound, and we deserve nothing but God's judgment. Regardless of the worst sin you committed, because it's your nature. Even if you never, hey, let me say it this way, even if you never committed a sin, you would still be guilty because of your nature. Now, you're going to commit sins because of your nature, but you're punished because of the nature that you have and the sins you actually commit. Both go hand in hand. So, for you personally that have been saved, it should lead to great joy, humility, and thankfulness. Okay, but here's the second thing. This truth of total depravity should break our hearts when we think about our unsafe friends and family who are still in that condition. Have you ever thought about an unsafe person as a prisoner of war? They're enslaved to their lust. They're spiritually dead. They're blinded by Satan. They're children of that wrath. They need grace. And I wonder in our evangelism and in our praying for unsaved people, do we really understand the condition that they're in? So how do you pray for a lost person? What do you pray? Lord, open their eyes. Lord, open their heart. Lord, overcome their deadness. Lord, release them from their slavery. Lord, do a work of grace that deepen their heart to overcome all of these effects of the fall. Lord, if they're going to be saved, it's got to be something that you radically do to the core of their being. I can't do this. You can't do this. All you can do is pray for them. All you can do is share the gospel with them. But if, if, if they're going to get saved, God has to do this deep work of grace. But our hearts should break for people that are lost because we were once that way. We want them to be saved. So we pray for their salvation and we share with them for God to save them. And I like this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I've said it many times. Spurgeon said this, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. It's kind of an eloquent way to put it. First, like if, if, if people are going to go to hell, at least let us warn them, let us love them, let us pray for them, let us do everything in our power to warn them about sin, hell, and death, and share the gospel with them. With this image of like we're grabbing them, like they're going to have to leap over our bodies, grabbing them and sharing them and warning them. 
So nobody's beyond the reach because of their sin. God can reach into the deepest of sin and save the worst of sinners. Remember, Paul says, I was the foremost of sinners and God saved me. So no sin is so great that God can't save. We're more sinful than we ever could imagine, but God's more gracious than we can ever imagine. And so the two takeaways are we praise him for saving us out of that. This is what we were, but also should burden us for people we see around us that are still in that condition. And it kind of heightens the the gravity and the seriousness of really the condition of people that don't know Jesus. And we can sit back and say, man, I wish Adam and Eve hadn't done that. But they did, and God permitted it for his glory, and we're stuck with this messed up world because of what they did. So we've got about 12, 13 minutes for questions. You guys have any questions? This wasn't as mind-blowing as last week, maybe not as encouraging, but what do you guys think? Last week we were talking about how he ordains mm-hmm. everything before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. So, back to the garden, if he ordained it, how did they really have a choice? Well, if he ordained it, how did Adam and Eve really have a choice? Same question that you would have. Do you really have a choice? And the answer is yes, because God permitted it. And it would happen, it's going to happen the way God ordained it to happen. So choices are real. Again, this is a difficult concept because God is sovereign. <clears throat> choices are real. God does not force you to sin. You sin freely. When you do sin, you're doing what God's decree had ordained to happen, even though God does not approve of it, and you may experience the consequences of it. Okay. Now, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that he has revealed are for us and for our children to obey. All I can say, Chris, is there are some secret things that the Bible, there's some things that the Bible teaches that at first glance appear to be in conflict with one another. And inquisitive minds, like, sounds like you have an inquisitive mind, want to somehow reconcile, figure out, rationalize how all these things fit together. And sometimes God just says, it is, you live with the tension, and you may never figure it out, but both these truths are in the Bible. So I guess where I land on it is this, I may not fully understand it, but I know it's in the Bible, and so I have to submit to it. So let's just talk about two truths. Does the Bible teach that God has a sovereign decree where he works out all things according to the counsel of his will? Can we agree with that? Yes. Does the Bible teach that we make decisions and we're accountable for our sin? Yes. Those two truths are right by each other. Now, how it all works together, how God works it out, what the plan is, we may not know that. What we're responsible for is obeying. So let me talk about this. Maybe I should have talked about this back when we talked about so God has two God has two wills. God has a what do we call will of command? And God has a will of decree. Okay, God's will of decree is that secret sovereign will 
that God ordained before the foundation of the world that he does not share with us, but he has a plan and a purpose. And on the day of judgment, we're never responsible for trying to figure out God's will of decree because he doesn't reveal that to us. But it's going to be accomplished because God has this sovereign will. Okay, That's one. So when we talk about God's will, it's his ultimate will that will be accomplished in the world because of his decree. Now, the other will is the will of command. This is where God gives us clear commands in the scriptures to obey. Like the Ten Commandments. Like any commandment that God gives in writing in scripture, we are responsible for following that. So we are accountable for God's will of command because he's revealed it to us. So we can be all worried about God's sovereign plan and the huge things that are happening in the cosmic curtain behind the scenes that we don't know. And those blow our minds, but at the end of the day, we're not responsible for understanding those. We're responsible for following what God has clearly told us to follow, and that means we're responsible in our actions. We, we, we make actions that are responsible, because if we don't follow God's will of command, we are sinning. And we should follow God's will of command, and we should not sin, and we should obey, and we're held accountable for the actions that we're supposed to be held accountable for that we know. So just because God has it all planned out doesn't mean that you don't plan, doesn't mean that you live however you want, doesn't mean that you don't make real choices. God has given us a clear command of how we're to live, what we're to do, we're responsible for following that. At the same time, overarching all of that, God's got his sovereign will that he's working out, that he doesn't give us privy to that. We may look back and see his hand of providence after the fact, but those two if you, if, you, if you understand those two things are simultaneously happening at the same time, you're responsible for following God's will, you're responsible for not sinning, you're responsible for being an obedient Christian. At the same time, God is working out what he's decreed before the foundation of the world to happen. And how it all happens in the role you're playing in it, you don't know. You're just responsible for living in obedience to him. That's the best way I can explain it, Chris. I don't know if that's helpful or if that's even more confusing. <laughs> Any other questions? I was just going to say, I think we're just going to have to realize there's some things that we're not going to know. And that, like you said, the things that that he's made more plain and that you put under his will of command is what we really need to, yeah, so, to so, focus on. Or, or, excuse me. So actually, turn to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Just turn there. Because you see both wills there in that passage of Scripture. You see the will of decree and the will of command. The two wills of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. I'll wait till you guys get there. Okay, so, so is everybody there? A lot of pages from where were we, John, to Deuteronomy. Okay. Deuteronomy 29. 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Okay. Let's just stop right there. What are the secret things? The will of decree. His sovereign plan. The things that he has ordained before the foundation of the world that he's chosen not to reveal to us. He's under no obligation to reveal his secrets to us. God is unfolding his will in his sovereign way without any obligation to share it with us. And we're not obligated to know it. We're not trying to figure it out. We can't figure it out. Okay. But then there's a comma there, right? But 
the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Okay, what are the things that are revealed? The things in the scriptures that are written down and what's the purpose of that? For us to believe. So the first clause in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things, that's God's will of decree. The second thing, the things that are revealed that we're supposed to do, that we're responsible for, that's his will of command. And he's revealed to us what we need to know and we're accountable for that. He doesn't have to reveal to us the secret things and we're not accountable for that. So you can spend all day long trying to figure out God's secret sovereign will and blow your mind, or you can say, you know what, it's hard enough just to figure out how to do what he's clearly revealed. (laughs) Maybe it's easier just to focus on the stuff that he's clearly showed me how to walk the Christian life and let me focus on that and then trust that God is working all things out. Remember I said last week, he's working all things out for his glory and all things for our good. And all things work together for good for those who love God who've been called according to his purpose. So even if you make a mistake or you think you go off script, it doesn't bother God because he has a sovereign plan for your good to get you back where you need to be. Well, to be fair, I never thought about these things until you brought them up. I, I, I never, you never thought about these things until I brought them up? Well, just blame me. These are good things to think about because they're in the Bible. Reminds me his name's Adam All right. Well, let's do this, guys. Let's, is there any other questions? Are we ready to go? Some of you have to go pick up your kids. Well, let's pray. Next week, is um, we're going to talk about covenant. What is the covenant God has made? Um, and then the week after that, spring break. So we'll have a break. So next week we will meet. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, We this is kind of discouraging to look at the, the fall of Adam and Eve and the effects of sin and, and all of this just kind of negative depravity. But Lord, it does help us to have perspective to know that this is what you saved us out of. This is what we were. This was the dire situation we were in. But Lord, you made us alive through Christ. You've given us grace. You've saved us. You've taken us out of that depravity and given us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And it leads to humility. It leads to joy. It leads to thankfulness. But Lord, it also leads to urgency in our evangelism and our sharing. So Lord, help us to see those around us that are in this condition. And Lord, help us to be even more um, urgent in sharing the gospel with those that need Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen.